It's Wednesday, November 30th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Elmer Stewart Rhodes III was convicted of seditious conspiracy yesterday, and you can tell how gleeful the particular media outlet is by the conviction with how frequently they call him Elmer. KHOU Houston, first mention of Stuart Rhodes. Also tonight, the North Texas founder of the far-right militia group Oath Keepers faces up to 20 years in prison. Stuart Rhodes, along with another member of the group, were convicted of seditious conspiracy. Tampa 10 reports. Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes has been convicted of seditious conspiracy for violent plot to overturn Democrat Joe Biden's presidential win. Also, Kelly Meggs, a leader of the Oath Keepers from Marion County, was also found guilty of seditious conspiracy. And here is MSNBC. Elmer Stewart Rhodes, the Yale Law School educated founder of the far right extremist group, the Oath Keepers, has been convicted of seditious conspiracy. Whatever you call him, convicted felon is the appropriate title. We should all be pleased and relieved by this verdict. I followed the trial, paying particular attention to the coverage in Lawfare filed by Roger Parloff. Parloff was concerned by the fact that Rhodes, Kelly Meggs, and his co-defendants never had an actual plan to go actually inside the actual Capitol and do anything. That might have been a stumbling block for the jury. What the prosecution argued was something like, what these defendants said so often and so vociferously that we need to act as a militia, we need to disallow the results of the vote to go through, that no matter what specific act that sentiment took hold of, they were conspiring toward an act of sedition. Maybe not any one specific act of sedition, but they were certainly planning to engage in sedition. And plan they did, and convicted of it they were. Well, that's at least what the jury found. Though, not all defendants were found guilty on all counts. That said, Parloff does worry that an appeals court might find some of the logic of the government's case wanting. But Elmer Stewart Rhodes will only have to wait to see how that plays out from his prison cell, a very specific prison cell. On the show today, thoughts on mass murders, the ones we pay attention to, and the murders we all but ignore. But first, Ted Kennedy was a lot of things, but the phrase that probably hit your brain when I first said his name wasn't extremely consequential senator. Maybe words like scion, brother, womanizer, inebriate may have crossed your mind before legislator. But he was all those things, and his life gets the full treatment that he deserves in a new biography by John Farrell, Ted Kennedy, a life. John Farrell is up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. 
And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. His was one of the most famous names in politics in the 20th century, and yet to say the name is not to conjure the figure at first thought or even at second. He is Ted Kennedy, scion of the most consequential political family of that era. The label that would always attach to him was the lion of the Senate and a life that we thought we knew but perhaps did not know as in depth until now. John A. Farrell has written a new biography of Ted Kennedy. It is called Ted Kennedy, A Life. John Farrell, welcome to The Gist. Hi. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on. So you wrote a big, sprawling Nixon biography before this, right? Yes, that's right. How much, and Nixon's all throughout the book, uh, in fact... Let's start with this. There's Ted Kennedy showing up to his brother's Senate office. It's locked. He's waiting on a suitcase. And who's next door? Who invites him in for a chat? It's Richard Nixon. But um, how much, when you were writing Nixon, did this Kennedy pop up? This Kennedy popped up mainly as the uh, specter of Richard Nixon's nightmares. Uh, Nixon got uh, elected in 1968. Uh, Ted was, was very young. That was the year that Bob Kennedy was assassinated. Nixon wanted to be reelected, and he was very much afraid that Ted Kennedy would be the candidate to challenge him in 1972. And actually, one of the Watergate tapes captures Nixon talking to his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, and saying, Bob, we want more wiretapping of the leading Democratic candidates, Kennedy and the others. So it also was something of a motivating fact for Watergate. You could argue that, well, it doesn't take much to make Nixon paranoid, or you could also argue if ever there was a figure who understood the uh, potency of his enemies, it was Richard Nixon. So that alone, and I wondered if you were writing the book, if you said to yourself, oh, Ted Kennedy is perhaps um, at least to Nixon, and therefore maybe I need to consider him as a weightier figure than history perhaps remembers him. Yeah, I don't know why Nixon was still paranoid after Chappaquiddick, but it sort of reflected what was going on in the press, which at that time was trying to uh, give Kennedy something of a pass and saying he was still a potential presidential candidate. When he finally did become a presidential candidate, he failed miserably, and you would think that Richard Nixon would have have seen this. But he had been seared by the um, experience in 1960 when he thought he had won the election and that Kennedy Uh, And the great Kennedy um, family operation had uh, stolen it from him in uh, Chicago and in Texas. So he had this lingering paranoia, like you said. Um, And uh, it was was puzzling to me why it was so extreme. I think it had to be personal. 
Yeah, so these are two figures carrying trauma around with them. And with Kennedy, I wonder if you've, like, obviously the uh, deaths, the assassinations of his two brothers had to have a profound role. But were you surprised just how profound that role was? And in crafting his personality and his the entire arc of his public and private life? Um, absolutely. That's a great uh, question because the overriding surprise for me and for and for some of his friends who have read it read the book is the revelation of just how tormented uh, he was and i just want to use you know one little example in 1964 he was uh, in a plane crash uh, the pilot and uh, one of his close aides and friends was killed and kennedy's back was broken he thought he was dying lying there in this uh, wet uh, rainy uh, orchard in massachusetts he was flat on his back, could not walk for six months, had to learn to walk all over again. For anybody else, and, and was in lifelong pain, for anybody else, this would be the defining moment of your life. For Ted Kennedy, it's almost parenthetical. And it's astonishing when you look at what everything that he went through. At one point, and this is the point after the uh, Bobby Kennedy assassination, you write, and, and Ethel Bobby's by then widow was pregnant at the time. And once the last child was born, Ted would have 13 fatherless nieces and nephews and his own three children to mentor. And this wasn't just a status of, oh, he happens to have 13 nieces and nephews to mentor. He became the head of the family. And the head of the family of this family is an extremely important role. And also, there could have been no way that young Teddy, the Teddy who you sketch out, the plump and lively and blithe Teddy Kennedy, could ever have imagined this because he wasn't the first son or the second son or the third son and was never raised to be. Exactly. And when the, the, the expectations fell on him, they fell um, like a big heavy weight on, on his shoulders. He had not prepared for it. He had not been prepared for it, um, as you said. And it's, it's no surprise that in, in grappling with this, um, that it affected his behavior. The other thing was that you know, Jack and Bob were both cut down in their youth. So they remained mythical young uh, figures at a time when uh, the media was not being very skeptical, not really doing a good job, a scathing job of, of un uncovering the characters of individuals. Ted Kennedy got to see the change in the media where everything was uh, up for grabs and, up and uh, fair game and had to endure that. And we got to see him uh, grow old and, and experience um, the different flaws of his character over life. Sometimes it, they remain private. Sometimes they overlapped into public life. Yeah, a little bit. And you acknowledge this. I mean, obviously, listeners will say, Ted Kennedy, oh, yes, he certainly was, if they're being charitable, had a problem with alcohol. And the word that was always used was womanizing. But it was beyond that. And there were moments in the book, you know, I didn't realize that in the mid 80s, he I knew that he and Christopher Dodd were up to some uh, shenanigans, but they sexually harassed people, women. You have uh, Ted Kennedy having sex on the floor of a of a restaurant with a lobbyist. I mean, there are things in here that, as you acknowledge, wouldn't fly in this era, but also probably did benefit from a less scrutinizing press. I don't know. Maybe it was somewhere between the hagiography of Camelot and the scrutiny of today. There is no doubt that the incident uh, with uh, uh, Chris Dodd and Ted Kennedy at a restaurant where uh, their dates went to the woman's room and uh, playfully they grabbed this uh, waitress and threw her around to each other and, and rubbed themselves suggestively against her. Uh, in the Me Too era, that would have ended two careers. 
Absolutely, no, no doubt about it. And there were, you know, there were other incidents like that um, in a, in a more uh, at a time of more um, heightened scrutiny that would have cost him his career. So in some ways, you know, he benefited. He benefited, and he um, uh, was penalized by the slow evolution of the of the media and of uh, current standards. She didn't think it was playful, right? Not at all. No. So we haven't gotten into substance, and this is what's fascinating. Let's just talk a little bit about the substance of his life work, and then we'll go back and talk about the psychology that gave us such an important figure. So I think people know that he was a champion for liberal causes generally, but if he had to say what the most important of those were, what would he articulate? There were two. Um, uh, he called health care reform, uh, providing uh, full access to health care to all Americans, um, as he said, as a as a right rather than a privilege, he regarded that as the cause of his life. But the other uh, thing, and I think the, the the place where he's missed most right now was uh, as a champion for civil rights. He was always somebody who uh, reminded us that there was a, a better America that we should uh, reach for. And with his amazing ability to reach across the aisle, um, he did things like in uh, in 1981. He forged a deal with Ronald Reagan and Senator Bob Dole to extend the Voting Rights Act for 25 years um, and actually make it even tougher. So uh, these were um, places where I think he is is missed the most because he had that ability with that name, with his huge staff, um, with the charisma and the myth to inject himself into an issue, call a lot of attention to it and put the pressure on the other um, politicians. I'm not sure that some of the things that are being done today could be pulled off if they knew there was going to be this uh, big old thundering voice calling them on it. Have you concluded that his, that his brother, John, who dissuaded him from going to the March on Washington out of fear of his uh, presence there being used against him, was he too cautious on civil rights, do you think? I don't know whether you could say too cautious. He, um, they definitely had no experience whatsoever with black people. Um, as, as Andrew Young famously said, they didn't even have black maids um, at, at Hyannisport. So they had absolutely no experience. And uh, to his credit, um, in, in a search for the black vote, uh, in their great debate in 1960, John Kennedy brought the rights of black Americans up um, in, when debating uh, Richard Nixon unprompted. And, uh, and uh, in that, at the end of the campaign, uh, when Martin Luther King was arrested in Georgia and his family was afraid that he would uh, end up being murdered in jail, it was John and Robert Kennedy who interceded and Richard Nixon who was given the opportunity um, and chose not to. So there was a, there was a pattern of, of decency and mildly courageous behavior uh, before they got into office. But John Kennedy as president was forced, kicking and, and screaming, into becoming a champion of civil rights by the civil rights movement. Uh, one thing that I'm struck by in, in writing this book and doing the research was just what how impactful that mo- movement was and, um, and, and how any movement that managed to sustain itself with such uh, outrage and a claim to uh, moral authority um, can be in America. That went on for, um, for decades. And finally, Robert Kennedy acceded that we, you know, we wouldn't have done anything. We were forced to do it because of Oxford, because of Birmingham, because of St. Augustine, um, uh, and Martin Luther King, uh, just just a steady, steady uh, pressure. Uh, when they finally did 
move on Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act. Um, it was, ironically, it was with the um, uh, Lyndon Johnson who did it using the great wave of sympathy uh, for the martyred uh, John Kennedy. So in, in that way as well, the Kennedys were movers of civil rights. How much of his effectiveness as a senator was strategic and how much was just personality-based? It seemed there are few anecdotes where he just explodes at someone and it seems to usually, you know, put this person on their back heels and have a good effect. And I was left wondering when he's screaming at someone on the wrong side of an issue, um, is he doing that to to get, advance his agenda or just because he got mad? Yeah, there's a very famous incident uh, in the battle for the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act in which George H.W. W. Bush's chief of staff, John Sununu, is berating one of the Democratic aides in a negotiating session. And Kennedy, Kennedy stands up and he slams his fist on the table and he stares at the, at the White House chief of staff and says, you want to you want to take us on, you take me on. And everybody in the room is silenced except for, for Bob Dole, who clearly knows what's going on. And he's sort of laughing to himself. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, afterwards, I talked to people who were there and, 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 you know, several of them say, oh, no, no, Teddy was definitely you know, outraged because he, he felt that this poor little aide was being picked on. And others who said, you know, classic Kennedy um, uh, using a moment like that to uh, erupt and put the other side on the defensive. It echoes there are earlier incidents too. Didn't he scream at Russell Long, or uh, there was another senator he lost his temper with? Well, you don't do you don't do this for for you know twenty or thirty years, and finally forty seven years um, uh, without picking up the you know the tricks of the trade. Um, one of the ones that I always loved was that if there'd be a negotiating uh, session, and they'd all be between the House and the Senate, and all be sitting around at a table. And uh, Ted Kennedy would say, uh, raise this issue. And he said, gentlemen, I, I just want to tell you that there's this bridge in Massachusetts, not, not that bridge in Massachusetts, there's a, there's a public works project in Massachusetts um, that I want to bring into this. I know it's not germane, but I want to make the argument for it. Uh, I just want your guarantee that at some point we'll have the time to do that. And they would all say, yeah, 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 Ted, let's get on to the main course. And they do the main course, and then it would be three o'clock in the morning, and everybody wants to go home. And uh, all of a sudden, they would hear from the end of the table, okay, gentlemen, now let's go to that public works project in Massachusetts. And they'd all look at each other and say, fine, put it in, Ted, because even if it's not germane, we want to go home. And so he, he picked up little things like that. Um, if you go to Massachusetts to the Edward Kennedy Institute, they have a recreation of his uh, office in Boston, and you can see the famous wall that uh, when visitors entered the office, he would take them by the, the hand and he would say, walk down and he'd say, now, now here's the coconut that, that uh, Jack in the South Pacific, uh, when PT-109 was uh, signed, carved uh, uh, his name on it for, as a plea for help. And, and over here, here's, here's a picture of uh, uh, no Irish need apply sign that I got from my grandfather, Honey Fitz, who was the mayor of uh, Boston. And, and here's, uh, oh, here's the picture of Bobby's wedding. And here's, and, and, and by the time they actually got to sit down and and talk about the legislation or, or whatever. He had thoroughly convinced them that they were, um, in, you know, in, in the holy nave of, of, of history and uh, in, inclined to, to help him, thinking that somewhere in their subconscious that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be part of this, um, this wonderful, exciting, charismatic history myself if, I, if they put my name on the bill with Ted Kennedy. And he had his flaws and he had his demons and he had his, if we want to look at alcoholism, maybe a disease. 
then he had his excesses. And if we want to be the least charitable, he had his moral failings. And you, you don't shy away from, you point out there were times when it wasn't just he had this dissolute personal lifestyle and this uh, uh, very charged and, you know, to his fans, heroic public lifestyle. But there were times when the one really did have an effect on the other. You talk about the Anita Hill hearings. He was just so diminished, he couldn't really be a credible voice on that. Were there others? That That's the main one. But um, a little known fact that I bring out in the book is that in August of 1972, as George McGovern was running a, a failed campaign against Nixon, um, Kennedy's staff had tracked down a key witness, one of the burglary team, uh, the guy who was acting as a, a lookout in the Watergate break-in. And there's a debate among Kennedy's staff, you know, should we have a big public hearing, help George and blow the doors off of, uh, off of Watergate, or should we just be quiet about it because all it's going to do is hold up a mirror to um, the senator's own personal behavior at Chappaquiddick three years earlier. And it's a fascinating debate because there's there's many different reasons as to why it would be good to hold a public hearing or why it would be not. One of the letters that I found that suggesting to Kennedy that he go ahead and expose this is from Sam Irvin, who later, uh, a year later, actually became the hero of the Watergate uh, hearings. But in the end, they just decided that uh, there was uh, there was too big a risk that uh, the whole thing would blow up in their face, be seen as a um, uh, Kennedy versus Nixon personal thing, and that uh, Kennedy's own personal morality could not sustain an attack on, on Nixon's campaign morality. Let's just take his legislative accomplishments, a figure in the Senate, just add up all the legislation, factor in all the missed opportunities, uh, the legislation he didn't pursue, the bad votes, the good votes, what he got. How important is he? Where does he rank? Sadly, succeeding generations um, have not fought as effectively um, as he has. And that has diminished, I think, um, his importance. So that in 1976, he reached across the aisle to Minority Leader Hugh Scott, and they passed a campaign finance bill, which... Um, the New York Times on the front page said, this bill will end forever the influence of special interests on American politics. That's how tough that bill was. And then it was very slowly diluted by those same special interests over the years, uh, especially by the Supreme Court in recent years, until now, uh, 50 years after Watergate, um, we are left with campaign finance system, which is a disgrace. Not only can anybody spend whatever they want to buy a politician, the politicians spend all their time trying to, to raise money. And we don't know who the big donors are. There's loud, they're allowed to contribute secretly uh, in what's called uh, dark money. So this is even a worse situation than the, the factors that, that brought about um, uh, Watergate. So that's, that's one example. Voting rights is another. And again, 1981, he works with Bob Dole and Ronald Reagan. There's a huge signing ceremony at the White House. Reagan is proud. He's got Jesse Jackson at his side, an extension of the voting rights bill for 25 years. And sure enough, this conservative court begins to chip away at the voting rights law. And now you've got voting rights under um, a major uh, assault in two thirds of the of the country. And uh, these are things that I think if, if, if um, Ted had been around in the last uh, 13 years um, since his death um, that we would have heard about and we don't 
hear about them now because there isn't this you know lion uh, roaring the way that um, that he used to do. Other things, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, healthcare, he kept that cause alive almost single-handedly through the through a conservative era. Um, parenthetically, he said the greatest tactical mistake of his life was not to accept a deal very much like Obamacare uh, when Richard Nixon offered it to him in 1974. But he kept it alive, fought and fought and fought, and uh, uh, moved the Affordable Care Act through his committee uh, before he died. Um, his staff helped uh, bring the different sides together and, and draft it. Um, in one of the last months before his death, um, he was waiting with President Obama at, at the White House, about to go into a, um, a, uh, a forum on health care. And he said, uh, Mr. President, um, the time is now. Don't waste this moment. And he said that again to a, um, in a letter to, to, to Obama after he, he died. And uh, Obama said that on the night of the signing of the Affordable Care Act, after the celebration was over and they had drank the champagne and everybody had gone home, he went back upstairs to the White House personal quarters and he was sitting there um, um, you know, saying hi to his dog, ruminating on the day, scratching the dog. And he said, I, and I thought of two things. I thought of my mom who died of breast cancer and I thought of Ted Kennedy. So if, if you're having a hard time getting health care and you use the Affordable Care Act and and there are rights now about what the insurance companies can do to you. Um, uh, yeah, Ted Kennedy still lives in your life. The name of the book is Ted Kennedy, A Life. Its author is John A. Farrell. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. That was fun. And now the spiel. Imagine you're on a train, not a local, not a commuter train, let's say a locomotive, where you can look out the window and actually take in the landscape. And what you see every 50 or 75 houses is one on fire. But the train doesn't stop. It keeps moving past them. Some passengers turn their necks, but this express, non-local train keeps going on. Another few dozen houses, and there's another one on fire. People on board might mutter, how sad, but the train doesn't stop. But then, every once in a while, after you've passed 98, 99 burning houses, you do stop at one particular house. And this fire might be bigger, a little bigger, but you also know you've passed ones of similar size without stopping. And with this one, though, the railroad personnel get out, they talk to the arson investigators on the scene, they assume that everyone on board will want to look, not to gawk, mostly to shake their heads and mourn and say how sad, but a little bit to gawk. And then the train moves on, more and more on fire houses without stopping until it happens again. One house draws the attention of the engineer and the conductor and all the passengers are in agreement. This is an awful, awful fire. More awful than what we passed? No, not saying that, but we passed them so quickly, you've got to expect a certain number of houses are just going to be on fire. But there's one fire that we're examining right now this one really sears the soul. So the actual tragedy I'm talking about isn't house fires. It's shootings and mass shootings. 2020 was the most murderous year in U.S. history. 21,000 people were murdered, more than three quarters by guns. Actually, the numbers don't square, and it's a little frustrating. We have firmer stats on gun murders in 2020 than actual overall murders. 
More than 19,000 people were gunned down in 2020. Uh, The FBI only accounts for 21,000 total people. So there must have been more people killed that the FBI statistics don't account for. And it is true. It's not like we never talk about murder on the local news. If it bleeds, it leads. And murder was made to be a political issue. But also the issue was, in many races, weren't Republicans actually using fear to convince us that murder was out of control, when really it's mostly under control except for a few specific communities? You know, not every neighborhood has an equal distribution of houses on fire. But what about the house fires where the train stopped or the particular murders that we all choose to look at? What those have in common are that they have unique characteristics like a very high death toll, a particularly evil murderer and randomness. And you know the names of those specific crimes or those fires where the train stopped. The train stopped in Uvalde. The train stopped in Buffalo and Highland Park. The train just stopped for a long time in Colorado Springs. Tonight, the suspect in the mass shooting at a Colorado LGBTQ nightclub, potentially facing murder and hate crime charges. With a bartender who says two heroes saved his life when they attacked the gunman. The one thing you know for certain about the accused gunman in the massacre in Colorado over the weekend is that he was a crazed right-wing anti-trans extremist. Suspect slumped in a chair with injuries to the face and head. And what we're now learning about a disturbing Facebook post from the suspect's mother just hours before the shooting. My producers cut together that specific montage, not just to say, look how much we talked about the Club Q shooting, but to point out, look who is doing the talking. The three anchors of the nightly national news, a prominent anchor for the most watched cable news in America. The characteristics of the crimes that we stop and examine and the crimes that we don't are not so clear as you might think. There were five killed in Colorado Springs. Go through the mass shooting database and you'll see lots of stories with either higher or slightly lower equal death tolls. You've never even heard of these stories. Five slain in Texas neighborhood identified suspect charged. This was McGregor, Texas, about 20 miles southwest of Waco. I'll identify the victims just by their ages. 38, 47, 20, 15, 14. A man killed his own family and also the neighbors. Less than two weeks before that, Elk Mills, Maryland, the Cecil County Sheriff's Office on Monday identified the two adults and three children killed in Friday's murder-suicide in Elk Mills. That did get a lot of local attention. Man slaughters family. This is a more typical murder with multiple victims. Pittsburgh, October 15th. Two men are now behind bars at the Allegheny County Jail in connection to a mass shooting on October 15th that left three people dead, including two innocent bystanders. There's a 59-year-old and a 33-year-old who were waiting for a bus. We cannot, as logistical and psychological propositions, cover all of these murders equally. We shouldn't. We can't even cover them all in any way. That's all our attention would be given to, given the fact that there were 20,000 of them or more in our country a couple years ago. The slain of Colorado absolutely deserve to be mourned, as do the two ladies waiting for a Pittsburgh bus. And whatever condolences their families might experience after tragedy is I would say entirely not dependent on the amount of cameras in their driveway the day after the tragedy. But what I'm talking about is not really 
news resources. I'm talking about our societal attention and how that reflects our values. I think it actually is good to be extra concerned about hate-fueled murder, especially if the hate springs not from a turf war or intra-family dynamics, but the loathing of someone else for his or her immutable characteristics. When there is a shooter who is driven by a manifesto, we should not look away, especially if there are others who are trading in the ideology that inspired such a crime. But for 19,900 of the 20,000 murders, we don't look at all. The train never stops. We're telling you what we care about and what we value by the decisions of what we pay attention to, what we value or also what can be made valuable. The majority of victims of the kind of random mass shooters that get attention are pretty similar to society as a whole. They're mostly white, as is our society, slightly more white than not. They're not especially likely to be young men. But when you look at all murder victims, well, in 2020, 12,000 were black. African-Americans are 12% of the population. They made up 60% of the murder victims. And so how is the decision of which fiery house to stop at not partially very much determined by the victim's race? As I've said before, it's complicated and troubling for major news organizations to correct this imbalance if doing so would mean you're just going to do more and more stories on typical murders because that means you do more stories about typical murderers. And remember, a typical murderer in America is from a demographic group that closely aligns with a typical victim. This is the story of murder in America. It's a story of guns, policing, class, and desperation. That's the story to be told. Those should be the usual themes we speak of when we speak of murder. Instead, the story that we do tell is one of bad guys and bad ideology. There's also a side of this that tells a story of lovers gone wrong and mystery, intrigue, and also a scintilla of danger to the listener. But mostly nationally, those newscasters you heard are intent on telling a story of bad guys and bad ideology. And here's my theory. The idea, bad guys, bad ideology, fits in perfectly with how all of cable news and most national news media sees the world. Bad people with bad ideas. Ideas you, in our audience, already know not to like. That's where the most heinous crimes are coming from. It fits in exactly with the viewer's pre-existing opinions. It gives the audience a sensible narrative. That's something you can use to keep an audience. That's something you can use to sell. And when you keep an audience, that's remunerative for advertising for your entire business model. In this way, the news organizations don't really have to deeply grapple with the multi-dimensionality of the narrative. You can just concentrate on the badness of the ideology. And the ideology is bad. I find myself muttering on the train as we sift through the ashes of one fire, but it doesn't explain all the last 85 fires we pass by. But no one on the train is listening. They're either talking about who gave this one arsonist his matches, or just moving on as we speed past a hundred more conflagrations without stopping.
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the just producer in an assistant capacity. I could just come out and say he's the assistant producer. That's fine. No shade. Joel Patterson is the just senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO or is the OO in a C capacity of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.